Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On the record with White House correspondent April Ryan. Today I'm very pleased to have with me Maryland Congressman Anthony Brown, who used to be my lieutenant governor um, in the state of Maryland. Thank you for joining us, uh, Congressman Brown, with April Ryan on the record. Um, thank you so much. I so appreciate you for talking to me at this moment. I think it's a perfect time for us to talk about so many things. Um, you know, at this moment, we are, I guess, mourning the loss of one of our American presidents. Uh, for many, he was a hero. Um, I didn't know that um, he was a pilot. And he lost two planes, one to enemy fire and another uh, during a training mission. And I think about you because you were uh, a military man and George H.W. Bush served in World War II, but you you did service in Iraq and, and during the Cold War, correct? Yeah, I served uh, 30 years in both active and reserve duty. I graduated college with an ROTC commission in the, uh, and I was in uh, on active duty as an army aviator uh, in in Germany uh, during the Cold War. So, um, you know, I served five years, uh, the last term of the Reagan administration. And, you know, we all remember Ronald Reagan as, you know, peace through strength. He invested a lot in the military. Um, and as a result, not just of the investment in the military, but really just the enduring strength of America uh, without shedding blood, we won the Cold War. And then it was George H.W. Bush who really led us through that transition. The Berlin Wall came down, 1989. That's when I came off of active duty. And and here you had um, George Herbert Walker Bush, who had served, as you mentioned, in, in World War II. Um, he leads us through this, you know, what could have been and was a difficult time. Um, and as we transitioned uh, to, you know, beyond the Cold War. Um, and he brought to office so much experience that, you know, that the youngest um, uh, American ever to serve uh, as a naval uh, aviator. He was a CIA director, ambassador in China. So when he came into office, he really understood the power uh, of, of, of the United States, but he also understood the, the destructive power of the military and how important it was that we don't just recklessly employ or deploy the United States military, but just use it as a tool uh, to ensure to ensure peace. And, and, and you, you said something so key just now, recklessly employ the military. Um, you know, there's this big debate right now about President Trump sending uh, troops or sending military personnel to the border uh, over these caravans 
and and this tear gassing and things of that nature. Um, and, and there's this conversation about posse comitatus. Um, you know that we are not that, that our military is not allowed to police our communities. Talk to me about that because you are involved uh, on the Hill in those matters on the committees that you sit in. Talk to me about right now where our military is as it relates to what could be perceived by some as reckless behavior by this president. Sure, and and I've taken issue with this administration since day one. Uh, You remember earlier this year uh, when the the president uh, authorized uh, about, I think, five or six thousand members of the National Guard uh, to the border. Um, I introduced an amendment to the Defense Authorization Act, which really wouldn't have prevented the deployment, but rather saying to the administration, instructing the administration that if you're going to do this, you've got to lay out a strategy. You have to tell the American public, you know, what is it? What is the impact on readiness? What are the costs? What are the benefits? Because I anticipated, I saw that this was just a reckless deployment. It was a dubious mission. Uh, We already have the Custom and Border Patrol um, on the border. um, And to the extent that they need more support, then we ought to focus on on their capabilities uh, and their capacity and not militarize the border. But that was back earlier this year. uh, And that was rejected. Uh, And then when later this year, uh, the president authorized the deployment of active duty military, now bringing the total number up to, although we didn't see 15,000 on the border, but he authorized up to 15. I thought that was just a bridge too far. That was what, you know, I, you know that was right before the election. I think he did that to distract uh, America, to suggest that we were somehow being invaded by this very dangerous migration of people to the north, when in fact what you had is you had, you had migrants who were fleeing violence in many cases. They were hungry, they were tired, uh, and they were coming to our country seeking asylum. Uh, and in response, the president militarized the border, sent you know, combat aviation units, combat engineer units, sustainment um, units, as if we were in a real wartime deployment, uh, much like when I went to Iraq. Uh, so I, oh. I, I had concerns with that. I took issue with it publicly. Many did. Um, but nevertheless, unfortunately, we still have uh, men and women from active duty who, who are still on the border as we speak. So once again, you're joining me with On the Record with April Ryan, and I'm talking to Maryland Congressman Anthony Brown, who served in the military. He knows of what he speaks. Um, and, and, and this is a perfect time to have this discussion um, because there's so much going on. And our military is in um, the forefront of this president for doing a lot of things. Now, I'm going to go back. I've been in Washington. It'll be 22 years, uh, January. And what I have found, you know, um, I've been hearing over the years, you know, our military in some way, shape or form have been brought into play in a lot of things. And, and of late, we're talking about no boots on the ground. You know, the past president, no boots on the ground, you know, flying missions with no boots on the ground or drone missions with no boots on the ground. Now we're talking boots on the ground to go to deal at the border or to do this or to do that. And I'm going to ask you a question. This is a very sensitive national security issue, actually. We are so stretched. We are stretched thin. We have been in various wars um, for years, and our numbers are not there, the way I understand it, if we had to engage in another major war with another great power. Um, We don't have the uh, financial, the physical, or the emotional wherewithal for another war. Is that true? 
So, okay, let me answer it this way. Um, and, and I adopt a, a terminology that you often hear from uh, military leaders. Uh, we are ready to fight tonight. So, I mean, I, I do want to reassure the American public that, uh, you know, our military is ready uh, to, um, you know, we, we, we certainly serve to deter war and in the event that deterrence fails to mm-hmm. win, to wage and win the next war. And whether that war was against a, uh, a great power adversary like China or Russia or, or against uh, Iran or some response on the Korean Peninsula, we are ready to fight that war. The, the, the question is, though, uh, at, at what risk? Right. Uh, and uh, we have for 15 years, uh, we have focused on the counterterrorism fight. We have not really invested in the modernization of the force. Um, so our our men and women, who you know, the sailors, the soldiers, the airmen, Marines, they are spread thin. There is no doubt about that. So they're ready to go tonight. But my question is, um, are they ready to go tomorrow night and the night after? But even more importantly, if they're ready to go tonight, can we ensure that they come home safely to their families tomorrow? And the great, yeah. yeah. And, and the great thing is, is that you just quantified all of the issues that, like we said, a great power, uh, a, a great power that could we could go up against. You know, you said Iran. You said, I mean, I'm not saying go up against, but we are in the midst of tensions with some of these nations, um, Iran. You've got issues with China. You've got issues with North Korea. And then there's issues with Russia, even though the president says that they're our friends. Um, Are we in a national security crisis? Are we in a foreign policy crisis right now? I think that we are uh, in um, a, a very dangerous position. And what I mean by that is that our president relies far too much on the military to project U.S. power. And the military is really designed, and you heard me say before, to deter war. The military is designed to act as deterrence and to give our diplomats, to give the the folks at USAID that do development projects around the world, uh, that give, quite frankly, U.S. private interests an opportunity uh, to um, sort of engage on the, on the global stage with, with allies, uh, with potential foes, okay, to have, to have a, as cooperative as a relationship we can, a competitive relationship sometimes, but to avoid hostilities. And this president has not invested enough in that sort of non-military diplomatic um, effort uh, in in global affairs, in international affairs, you have you have major consulates and embassies, I should say, uh, where you don't have ambassadors. Saudi Arabia, for example, that's in the news today for a number of reasons. The, yeah, a number of reasons. The killing, the killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Of a, of a you have a journalist yeah. from the Washington Post. If this president believes what Saudi Arabia is saying versus the evidence that we are being told. And we and and not only that, uh, even even preceding this 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 tragic uh, uh, murder uh, of Khashoggi, a murder and maiming, and then this cover up uh, where you have, as you mentioned, the president ignoring the information from our own intelligence community. You have Saudi Arabia, which has been a partner of the United States, uh, engaging in indiscriminate. Uh, 
uh, military operations, more specifically in in uh, air raids uh, on um, innocent women and children uh, in in Yemen. Uh, and I supported the effort uh, um, to 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 stop that, to stop the, the, the U.S. military from supporting those actions. Uh, it was it was rejected in the House, but finally coming out of the Senate, uh, we got some agreement to to, to curtail um, our support to that. But we need to stop that. If, if Saudi Arabia is a partner, we need to tell all of our partners around the world we do not tolerate the indiscriminate killing of innocent civilians. That is unacceptable. In, in in any military operation, um, so so you got that going on, and we're coming back. Um, you don't have an ambassador uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, and so it, 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 it's a reflection of this administration's um, unwillingness uh, to to engage in robust diplomacy and instead to militarize our relationships and our strength around the world. And that's where I say. In the answer to your question, I think these are dangerous times for the United States. Hmm. And you know what's crazy is is that um, you know these are these are dangerous times. The stakes are so high, and so many people don't realize how the depth of the crisis. Um, you know, we're always at a crisis level, but to what level? We and we're we're it's pretty high, um, especially from a president who did not serve in the military but had bone spurs, and he's willing to send people in harm's way um, and, and, and cause rifts in other nations. And, and people need to be aware of this. This is not beating up a president. This is about exposing the truth of what's happening in your nation right now. Now, I want to flip the script a bit. And, and this is one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you for a couple of weeks. But we've got so much on the table uh, with with these issues that you are an expert in. What I want to kind of flip it to, we just, uh, we just uh, saw the midterms. Midterms came and they left. Um, controversial, but also we saw new faces. We saw a lot of women. We saw a lot of teachers. We saw a lot of minorities who came out and said, I don't like the turn that this nation has taken, so I'm going to lead by service by becoming an elected official. And then we also saw a number of military personnel uh, who decided to serve via uh, making policy and, 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 and laws. Talk to me about that. Why do you think we have now seen an increase in those who are formerly from the military, like yourself, who have decided to come into politics? Sure, and let me and, and let, let me give you give your uh, listeners some numbers too, so they understand. Uh, you know, 435 members of Congress. Now we are still closer to an historic low in terms of the number of veterans uh, mm -hmm. uh, in Congress, but the number's going up. There are 95 veterans in Congress, uh, and and you mentioned uh, more women veterans. Uh, this is the largest number of women veterans, uh, in, you know, in Congress today. The number's only six, but but that's better than zero. Uh, and this is the largest class of freshmen um, sort of veterans coming into Congress in a decade. And we're going to be joined by 19 uh, new freshmen. So this is this is exciting. And 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 what I what I know firsthand from my own experience, what I've seen from from fellow veterans, are like, we're problem solvers. Uh, and you don't have to be a veteran to problem solve. But you know, 
the time that we've spent on active duty, we're mission focused, and we we often disagree uh, on on how to how to you know uh, accomplish the mission. We come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, but we understand the importance of of identifying the mission, um, coming up with a common understanding of what that mission is, uh, and then uh, using all of our resources to get that job done. And, and where we disagree, really just fundamentally understanding that those disagreements cannot get in the way of mission accomplishment. So, so you bring that, that can-do ethos uh, to Congress and you apply it not just to national security issues, uh, but these are men and women, these are veterans who are going to serve on the Transportation Infrastructure issue uh, uh, Committee, uh, they're going to be on the Natural Resources Committee, they're going to be on Ways and Means and Appropriations. So you bring that problem solving, let's find consensus um, uh, culture uh, to to the work of Congress. I think it's going to be a tremendous benefit, and I'd like to see with with you know with every succeeding cycle, more and more veterans uh, join us in Congress. Do you think any of this has to do with the fact that the VA is broken still? Um, that you know, a lot of people have a hard time dealing with the VA for whatever reason, be it, you know, going to the hospital or be it uh, just dealing with some of the benefits or issues that um, that are supposed to work for them. I think that has to do with some of it because, you know, when, when you think about it, uh, you know, what is an individual's most frequent contact with government? You know, for some people, it may be just, you know, every two years, the Department of Motor Vehicles to get their car registered. Um, and and for veterans, it, it, it often uh, is the Department of Veterans Affairs. And the Department of Veterans Affairs is, is still a very challenged uh, organization. It's broken, um, yeah. <laughs> it's broken, yeah. I, 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 you know, I love the men and women who work at the VA because I visit the VA medical centers all the time, and, and they're very committed to, to to serving veterans. But what 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 the, why it's broken is not because of the people who work there, but it's it's the resources we give them. They work on a legacy um, IT system. Um, they the, the leadership under this administration. I mean, look at this. We're now looking at our um, you know, you know you, you, our second secretary. Uh, the, the 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 president earlier this year nominated his personal physician who was uh, woefully unqualified to be the leader at the Department of Veterans Affairs to be that secretary. Unfortunately, that got um, uh, you know the, that that got derailed. I mean, that would that would have been a real real uh, travesty. Yeah. So, uh, but but this is the commitment to to uh, to the leadership or the lack thereof at the VA. They don't have a chief information officer at VA, and that's one of their biggest challenges: information technology. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's broken because of the lack of, of of technology, the lack of leadership. Congress has done some things. We've appropriated more money. We've given them greater flexibility in hiring. We have we have given them more authority than being the VA, greater authority to to coordinate care for veterans. That health care in the community if the VA medical system isn't being responsive uh, enough. So we've given them the tools that they need, but, but check this out, uh, April. There are still 45,000 job vacancies at the Department of Veterans Affairs. That's crazy. Right. And oh. so those are jobs that if they were filled, we would be providing the health care. We would be, we would be, um, um, Deciding there whether the, the the veteran gets their disability benefits or their educational benefits, and instead there's a backlog. And you probably are very aware, and your listeners uh, are very aware that right now we've got a major.
future backlog in the post 9-11 GI educational bill. This is a great bill that was passed by Congress a few years ago. Um, it's a great benefit for veterans and their families. Uh, we, we enhanced the benefits earlier this year, but the VA's uh, uh, computer system couldn't handle the enhancement, and now there's a added backlog in that system. So, uh, to answer, so yes, it's broken. Really and it's got to be fixed. It's got to be fixed. So you, so you have veterans who are exposed to that, and then some of them decide, hey, we're, we're going to run for Congress. Or even if they're not personally affected, because they're involved in the veteran community, they know of these problems, and they say, hey, I'm going to run for Congress. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to do something. So, yes, that does motivate um, some veterans to run. Well, Congressman, I am so thankful that we talked. I mean, we could talk about this. There's so much on the table that we could talk about. But I'm going to say this, and I'm going to end on this note. Thank you one for your service in the military and for your service to the American public in all facets of your life. But I'm going to leave you with this on the VA. My father was in the army before I was born and then he got out of the army. He wanted to be a self-made man. My father and my mother both transitioned this world. But my father, I'll never forget, as a young child, he used to say, you know, when he would be, when he would get sick or take sick or what have you, he never wanted to go to the VA. He would always go to a regular doctor because back then, even I'm 51 years old, um, you know, back then he was like, the system is broken. So he relied on my mother's health insurance to go through a system to know that he would be okay. And that's sad. The assurance for those who have fought for our freedoms or stood for our freedoms should be in place. Period. End of story. You're absolutely right. I mean, look, these are men and women who made a sacrifice beyond what most Americans are ready, willing, and able to do today. Your father did it. There are generations before and generations after, and we owe them a lot more uh, than what uh, we are delivering for them today. So it is an ongoing effort. There is no doubt about it. Uh, I welcome these new veterans of Congress to join us in making sure we're doing better by our veterans. So. Yeah. Uh, and thanks, you know, uh, you know, I want to thank your family, your father, your mother uh, for their service. And I'm sure that, it, you know, it is, that, that I'm sure has influenced you because, as I said at the, at the outset of the program, you're on the front line uh, and you certainly have that ethos of fighting for what's right. Oh, thank you, Congressman. I so appreciate you. And I want to say this once again. Thank you. You're welcome to come back anytime. Happy holidays. I know I'm going to see you in Maryland lighting some Christmas trees somewhere. But anyway. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Congressman. <laughs> thank you for joining me with On the Record with April Ryan. Take care. Don't forget to subscribe to On the Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. On the Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.